Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner, still here, right on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're about to have a conversation with Shane Bauer, who's been on the show before numerous times. One of those times is about the book he wrote called A Sliver of Light with Sarah Shord and Joshua Fatal. It was a memoir about their years as prisoners in Iran and has been reporting on uh, issues in prisons in California and as a senior reporter out Mother Jones and won numerous awards including the Hillman Prize uh, for magazine journalism and joins us again about his latest work that is in Mother Jones where he went undercover as a guard in a private prison in Louisiana and did this video and incredible story as well. And welcome back to the program. Good to talk to you, Shane. Thanks for having me back. So, Shane, let's just jump into it. I mean, so you um, took this job. But let's take a step backwards. Why did you – this is clearly something you wanted to do. You wanted to do this investigative piece on private mm-hmm. prisons. Talk a bit about the background of why you leapt into this and the way you leapt into it to become a prison guard. Right. Uh, well, I'd been reporting on criminal justice and prisons for a few years and was constantly coming up against walls when trying to report on prisons. It's very difficult to get access to prisons in general in the United States. Uh, you know, if you get in, it's generally for a, a scripted tour. Um, it's hard to get records uh, from prisons. And this is especially true uh, with private prisons. Private prisons um, are not subject to a lot of uh, public records laws because they're not public institutions, they're companies. Uh, we, we haven't had in the three decades that these, these prisons have existed, we haven't had an up-close look at what life is like inside of them. Um, so I really wanted to, to, get, to get in. I mean... You know, I'd seen uh, reports from private prisons when there's kind of eruptions, when there's riots. Uh, One prison was shut down in Idaho some years ago after um, severe understaffing and um, a high level of violence. And, you know, had read about um, kind of claims of uh, poor, poor medical care and understaffing and things like that. But I really wanted to get on this kind of granular level of what what it was really like inside but one a couple of interesting pieces here, a lot of interesting pieces. I mean, um, this prison in Louisiana is one you picked, and you had no problem getting a job. You even said who you were. Your name is Shane Bauer, mm-hmm. and you worked for this, this, this journalism center, but they still give you the job. Right, yeah, yeah. No I, background I feel, check, really. Well, I, I filled out an application on the, the corporate website, um, sent it to a handful of their prisons, and got calls back from most of them. Uh, did interviews within a couple weeks, and uh, they did a, a criminal background check that took about 24 hours. Um, but even the interviews, they didn't ask me, you know, why I wanted to work in a prison. They didn't ask me anything about my job experience. It was just kind of a you know generic uh, job interview that you might get at a McDonald's. You know, asking questions like, "How do you work with others?" Um, the only question they asked me that that actually had to do with prisons was. What is your idea of customer service, and how does that apply to inmates? <laughs> but, but customer service is not quite at the top of the list of this private prison, CCA's <laughs> prisons. It sounds like from what you from what you experienced. I mean, I saw uh, a lot of kind of consequences of cost cutting. You know, these companies companies like CCA are traded on Wall Street, um, so CCA is 
is constantly kind of stuck in this tension between needing to provide security and care for for the prisoners and turning a profit. So the guards were paid $9 an hour. Um, When I went into this job, I didn't you know, intend to be to be writing about guards, but I was surprised uh, at how thin the line was between the guards and the prisoners. Um, you know, they're from a similar socioeconomic class. Um, I would see guards and prisoners uh, bonding over their shared disdain for the company. Morale was really low. I mean, there were days that I turned up for work where there would be 24, 25 guards uh, showing up for shift in a prison that had 1,500 prisoners. Well, which is insane. I mean, you, you, you felt that. The interesting thing you just said here was, though, though I think that clearly you went in from the, from the writing you did and from that video you did, very frightened of this job from, the, yeah. from day one, right? Yeah. I mean, I started, I went through four weeks of training, and uh, at the end of those four weeks, uh, didn't feel very equipped. Um, the guards there were not given, uh, you know, pepper spray, nightstick, anything really to protect themselves other than a, a radio. And, you know, they're in a, a situation that uh, feels impossible. I mean, I was working in a unit with 350 prisoners with one other guard, one other floor officer. Um, we're trying to manage, you know, this uh, massive amount of, of prisoners that are constantly frustrated because, you know, their classes are, are getting dropped, their, you know, programs are supposed to go to are getting canceled. Um, you know, a lot of them are essentially living in these dorms all day long aside from mealtime. So uh, there's just kind of this general sense of frustration and chaos. I mean, there's a lot of violence there, uh, in part because uh, guards could not, there weren't enough guards um, to really do security checks, and the ones that were there had very low morale and kind of had a sense of, you know, I'm getting paid $9 an hour. Why should I do anything other than just show up for work every day? My coworker said, you know, I feel like I'm a body to this company. And he actually said to me at one point, I wish an investigative journalist would come and investigate this prison. I mean, There's some glaring things here. I mean, one is, I mean, anybody who spent any time in prison for any reason, uh, working or being there, uh, in a state or federal prison, they're, they're not easy places to be in. They're hard places for a guard. They're harder for for inmates, right? Uh, for people who are incarcerated. But there's something. But there's a level higher, you, clearly, that you found inside. Mm-hmm. Even talking to one of the in, uh, former former uh, uh, incarcerated men, right? There's something different about the way the private prisons run their place that makes this place a sheer hellhole in ways that prisons who are hellholes are not even close. That's, to me, one of the the biggest pieces in here. It was amazing to me to hear prisoners uh, talk about Angola prison, which is Louisiana's uh, maximum security prison. It's the largest prison in the country. In a horrible place. Yeah, they talked about it as uh, though it was a much better place to be. Um, And, you know, that prison has a reputation of being, uh, you know, Guards being really overbearing, being this kind of, um, you know, uh, very restrictive kind of prison. Um, and at Wynn, it was kind of the problem was in some ways the opposite. Uh, the guards were, um, you know, kind of seen as a joke and there was very little structure. Something prisoners always said to me was there's no structure here. Um, it's just kind of this bare bones prison 
you know, with 1,500 prisoners. And, you know, most of them are just wanting to do their time and get out. But um, you have, you know, some prisoners that um, are are violent. And there's a vicious cycle that happens when you have prisoners who are making knives and attacking other people. And those people are not protected. They start making knives. And, um, you know, there, there was a time while I was there that the company, the prison got so out of control that the company sent in its uh, tactical team from around uh, around the country, these kind of SWAT-like teams. And uh, the state also took over the prison. And they found, in just two days, they found uh, 70 shanks in the prison, homemade knives, um, which is a remarkable number of, of weapons to find in a prison. I mean, and, and it's also, I mean, the, you, you, there was lack of medical care. You had one social worker there for all those prisoners, a half-time psychologist, a half-time psychiatrist. The way you wrote about it in the, in the article, the doctors they hired were people who had been, uh, some of them had been had been not allowed to practice on in their own practices or they'd been sued many times. I mean, so yeah. the, I mean, it was really... Uh, the, the one man who lost his fingers and his toes because mm-hmm. he had gangrene and they wouldn't give him any medical attention. I mean, right. uh, yeah, that, I saw this over and over again. Prisoners, um, I mean, there are prisoners that would come to me desperately saying, Look, I've been to the infirmary many times and they just keep sending me back with Motrin, um, you know, that have, a ho- you know, any of a number of uh, serious medical conditions and are pleading to me to try to do something to get them some real medical care. Um, I saw a man who kind of passed out who had just come from the infirmary where he said they found fluid in his lungs and he was trying to get sent to a hospital, uh, but he just kept going to the infirmary and getting sent back. Um, and, you know, this is a part of the, the conundrum with uh, a private prison is that, you know, when or CCA, if they sent a prisoner to a hospital, they had to pay for that medical care, um, which is a major expense when you're making $34 a day from a prisoner. So a couple of things that came to my mind as, as I was reading this, uh, the piece that you wrote and, and watching these videos. Um, and harking back to obviously our first conversation about your, your imprisonment in Iran. Mm. Um, and, and those two years or a little bit more than two years you spent in, in prison in Iran. So how would you compare – the prison conditions that you saw in Iran with the prison conditions that you saw in this private prison in Louisiana? Well, they're very different. Um, The prison that I was in in Iran was a huge prison. I was in one uh, ward of the prison. I didn't really see the whole prison, but the Mm -hmm. the place that I was in was a political prison. Um, It was uh, a very um, restricted prison. Um, We were kept in either in solitary confinement or in cells with other people, but we're not really allowed to interact with prisoners outside of our cells. Um, And, you know, we left our cells, we were blindfolded. Um, People were sometimes uh, tortured in the prison. Um, Wynne was uh, kind of, you know, extremely, it was, it was, opposite in many ways, but also in a dangerous way. Uh, Wynn was much more violent than the prison that I was in in Louisiana. Um, 
again, there was, you know, this sense of there not being a structure or much security at all at Wynn. So, and people are living in these dorms of 44 men that are, you know, just kind of, um, they have a bed and a, a cot and a locker, um, no walls to separate them. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of violence. Um, it was uh, much more chaotic seeming than the prison I was in in Iran. I mean, it, it, I mean, this it, it, the the call in this piece to me was a kind of a cry that I mean, there needs to be, it seems to me, a massive investigation of our private prison industry, even though it only houses eight percent of our prisoners mm-hmm. um, in this country, federal, state, and local. Um, I mean, what you saw here was a a, a place that was completely anarchic. Um, right. where nobody was being taken care of, where guards lived in fear of their lives every day and every minute, and as did the people who were incarcerated. Yeah, and after I left Win, I spent another year working on this story and did a lot more reporting. And, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits against CCA around the country for similar issues, for, you know, alleging um, inadequate medical care, uh, inadequate security um, inadequate, you know, mental health services. Um, you see this stuff come up over and over again. So, two things happened to you, it seemed to me, in that in that prison that I found very interesting. Um, in the piece that you wrote, one was that, I mean, you you clearly, at first, perhaps, had an affinity for, and and love for the men that you found incarcerated. A sense of a sense of of that, that, but but then also there was a fear there, right? Yeah, I mean, right? I had been a prisoner myself, and I think there's few people who have been locked up that don't sympathize on some level with other people who are locked up. And um, when I went there, I was, you know, I was really interested in investigating the conditions um, in this prison, and I found myself, uh, you know, as a guard. You know, I went in kind of with this feeling that, okay, I'm a guard because it's the only way I can get inside. And I, it was almost as if I was putting on a costume. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I quickly found that it's not only a costume. I'm uh, in a job and a very difficult job and I'm in a role and people are going to interact with me um, in that capacity. And uh, I my energy quickly shifted from... Um, focus, you know, being focused on reporting to being focused on how to be a guard and how to make it in that prison. And um, when I first started, you know, I wanted to be a kind of easygoing, sympathetic guard, uh, have a good relationship with all the prisoners. And that's what I tried to do. But it didn't last very long. Um, It's very hard in prison for anybody, whether they're a prisoner or a guard, to... uh, you know, to to make it when you're not acting in your own self-interest. Uh, prison is a very a place where people are very self-interested. There um, is a lot of conflict, and conflict is inevitable. I mean, I found that you know when when I would uh, be doing people favors, people would ask me for more favors, ones that I couldn't give them, and they would get frustrated with me, and I was just making enemies. Just by being there and being in that role, um, I was the, you know, I had prisoners say to me, I know that you are powerless to change this system, but at the same time, I was their first point of contact. So we were always going to be locked in a kind of battle. And 
for me, it was an issue of uh, being safe and, and getting through and trying to communicate a message that I couldn't be pushed around, which, you know, inevitably led to me being in an authoritarian position. Um, and, you know, I found that it's, it was striking to me, you know, how much I could be shaped by the, a situation that I was in, um, you know, no matter who I thought I was inside, when I find myself in a radically different situation, I become a different person. And and, and you weren't there that long. Right. Four months. Four months, yeah. right? And so, part of, you know, the uh, when I left, I mean, I ended up leaving suddenly, but I was seriously considering wrapping up the project largely because I saw how much it was affecting me. And I was worried that if I stuck with it for too long that, you know, some of these changes might not be temporary. What do you mean by that? I mean, you know, I saw these guards that had worked there for years and um, the the cadets that were coming in, all of the, all of the cadets that I w- was with were not um, in any way kind of sadistic or I don't think they were taking the job out of authoritarian desires. I think they just needed work. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I did see that many of the guards who had been there for a long time uh, that seemed to become a part of their personality. And we actually took personality tests in training and they told us that many people's uh, personality, dominant personality traits they found uh, changed over time when they worked in the prison, that they tended more towards these kind of rule oriented uh, kind of authority, authoritarian um, personality traits, those kind of became more dominant. And I saw that with, with people that worked there. And, you know, I didn't want that to be me. You clearly had affinity with some of the men and women who worked there because the two people you interviewed intensely, at least in the videos, mm-hmm. um, uh, whose name I'm blocking on, there was an older white man in the 60s and a younger black woman. Yeah, Dave Bakel and Jennifer Callahan. Right. Um, that that I mean, that you you could hear that they felt similarly to you in terms of what was going on in the prison and why they think it was wrong the way inmates were treated and they needed to get out of there and they, were, they did not like working there. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I met anybody who liked working there. I mean, you know, and I think this is not just. I think you know, guards in general will say to you, "I never said to myself, I want to be a prison guard when I grow up." You know, it's kind of a place that people end up and um, you know don't don't really want it. And I think I, I saw a lot of guards struggling with a desire to be uh, humane and to treat prisoners, you know, as as human beings. Um, but like me, they're stuck in this situation and in this role. Um, that makes it very difficult to do that. And I think, you know, for some people, they quit because they felt it was just too dangerous. For others, they uh, just couldn't really reckon with that contradiction and, um, you know, having to to interact with people that way day in and day out. So if you, as a journalist, but also as a person who is a political activist – um, and, 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 and this is kind of underground reporting. And you tell the story here of how CCA, this private, private prison corporation, began and the people who started it. I mean, so what, what does this tell us? I mean, I mean, it seems to me that, that, that um, this, 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 this for-profit prison world people, that always people complain about, I mean, there has to be a point where this gets looked, to, gets looked into in a much deeper and more profound way 
to end it, perhaps. I mean, I'm saying this is you – know, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, you talk well, about how CCA was founded and it's – Right. And, and they, 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 they're charging uh, – they get, they get free toothpaste and uh, free toilet paper for, for people incarcerated from the state. They charge the inmates for this money. They cut right. corners. No doctors. I mean, how can this be allowed to go on? Well, I mean, this has come up in the the in the primary debates. Both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders right. uh, said that they would ban private prisons if they were elected. Um, I think it is an issue that is starting to be looked at. I mean, these prisons came about as a result of general overcrowding in our prisons and a, a boom in our prison population. Uh, the state couldn't deal with it. The state was building prisons and they couldn't keep up with you know, the amount of people that were, were getting locked up, um, partially as a result of the war on drugs and changes in sentencing laws. And, um, you know, th- this is a big topic of conversation now. Um, you know, our overblown prison population, we have 2.2 million people behind bars in the United States. And uh, Democrats and Republicans are both uh, looking at this, and there's kind of consensus on the need to have some kind of criminal justice reform. And, you know, I think the private prison element is ultimately uh, just a corner of this much larger issue. Um, but it is something that sprung up um, as a kind of measure to deal with the amount of people we have in prison. So if we're dealing with that kind of underlying issue of, you know, just the sheer number of people we have in prison, then. Um, this private prison issue, you know, is something that might just kind of um, be dealt with as as a result of the larger problem. I mean, I know whoever is president. I mean, if, if Clinton's president, then she well, she can stop the federal prisons, can't stop all the state and local prisons from being controlled by private corporations. Well, not all, but you know the percentage that are. But I mean, it really is. I mean, when you look at this, I mean, it's it's. Um, we always imagined that inside these private corporate prisons, the corporately run prisons, that it was that there were horrendous things were going on. But I mean, you've not, now you've been able to get in there, but nobody else has, to kind of really release these videos in this article um, that exposes it all. Um, that, that that seems to me that this could help fuel a discussion that might that further the end of these prisons. Yeah, I mean, my intention going into this was to get inside and write about what I saw and experienced. And I don't think it's, you know, a black and white story. Um, you know, I don't think that, you know, there's uh, this kind of um, evil guard. You know, there's it's a it's a very complicated story um, and it's a very complicated system that we're dealing with. But my intention was going in and depict it um, as faithfully as I could. And I hope that that can be used in this discussion um, around, you know, um, private prisons. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Well, Shane Bauer, I want to thank you. It's been a thank good you. discussion and really good article you wrote. Great videos, which we'll be linking to from Mother Jones, My Four Months as a Private Prison Guard by Shane Bauer. Uh, and all those links will be there for you to check this out yourself and to read them and watch the work that he did. Shane, thanks so much for the work you're doing. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And look forward to see what you come up with next. Thanks. Take care. Bye. We're about to take a very short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll listen to a segment from the Mark Steiner Show archives, an interview with James McBride about his book, Kill Him and Leave, My Search for the Real James Brown. <laughs> 